And we've been in a series called The Good Life. And um, oftentimes when we start a series, we usually walk through a certain topic or a certain passage of Scripture or a book of the Bible. And um, so we've been kind of walking through this whole idea of what does it really mean to live the good life? What does it really look like? And uh, based on the past two weeks and based on really the last week, um, based on the conversations that I've had with many of you in here, based on the certain span of events that's happened to me in the past month, I decided to just scrap that series. Um, And I decided to do something this morning that I think um, is very timely for this church. I know it's very timely um, for me. So this is a message that I'm titling today, This is War. Um, I don't know if you've lived life long enough yet, but you will understand one day when you get to that point and you get married and you have kids, or maybe if you're single and you've lived long enough, you will understand that life is simply war at times. Things don't always go how we intend them to go. Um, they don't always go as we plan for them to go. How many of you ever had a plan and you were ready for that plan and you had like five steps to accomplish it and then one thing comes across your path and ruins it? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Um, I can't tell you how many plans or timelines that I've looked out and said, once I do this, then this is going to happen and then this is going to happen. But oftentimes life does not go as we expect. And um, I started thinking about it, and basically everything that's happened to me in the past month and a half, I look at it and go, there's no way that this is just chance. There's no way that this is just a coincidence, and there's no way that I'm having so many conversations with many of you in here today going, there's no way that this just happens. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk about something I don't think that I've ever talked about here, but I want to talk about this idea that there is a spiritual world out there. Um, The Bible calls it spiritual warfare, uh, but there is a spiritual world out there, a demonic world out there that really um, wants to do nothing but destroy us. Um, And is constantly putting things in our path to discourage us, to get us off of the right track. And uh, to be quite frank, um, the devil wants nothing but our destruction. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't, it's going to be on the screen. We have a huge Bible right behind me. Um, But before we do this, I'm going to pray. And I'm just going to pray that God would have his way this morning and that ultimately that God would begin to speak to you in a way that you've never heard him before. So Father God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for what you want to do. God, I pray for those of us that have been struggling. God, for those of us that have been fighting. God, it feels like our life feels like tug of war from what we want and maybe God, we're just fighting what you want and what we want. And God, I just pray that today, God, that you would just break down walls God, that you would penetrate hearts. God, I pray for um, those that have just hardened their hearts in a certain area. God, I pray that you would soften them this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I don't know if you are a history buff. Um, I love history. And so to help illustrate a point, I want to start off with some history. Um, On June 6, 1944, at 6.30 a.m., there were 5,000 ships carrying, get this, 160,000 allied forces, and they were approaching on the beaches or the southern beaches of France. It's better known today as D-Day, a day that we invaded, and it's a day that many people know where a lot of people died. 
Now, I was reading through some history stuff, and before the boats ever deployed, before the men ever jumped off of the boats, um, these are some things that were broadcasted on the loudspeakers. This is some of the things that their captains were telling their soldiers, and it says this, fight to get your troops ashore, fight to save your ships, and if you've got anything left, fight to save yourself. Then another says, we may die on the sands of, on the sands of France, but we will never turn back. Or another was this, this is it, pick it up, put it on, you've got a one-way ticket, and this is the end of the line. Um, That day, 2,500 Americans died that day, and many in a span of 15 minutes. As soon as the soldiers got onto the sands of France, they were... There are many recounts and many stories of saying just to get to a bunker, just to get to a place where they could secure themselves and set up a line of sight and to fire back at the enemy, they had to crawl over thousands of dead bodies. But as the boats reached the shore, there was not a doubt in any of these men's mind. Many of them knew that this was it. This was the end. This was it. This was death. Death was imminent. Many of them knew that they would never hug their wife again, never kiss their kids again. They were not coming home. I can assure you one thing. Many of them did not get confused coming off the boat and didn't think they were going to an exotic beach vacation in France. They knew that this was war. They knew that, hey, I've got a weapon. I've got to use it. And most likely, I'm probably going to die. The thing that is so powerful about this story, the thing that is so um, telling about this story is these men knew when they got on this boat that that was it. That was the end of the line for many of them. And the thing that I love about the story is the bravery of these men because even though that they knew death was going to happen, they still chose to get on the boat and fight. Now what I'm about to read in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is going to allude to the same thing. He's going to show us that every single day that we wake up, every single day that we do this thing called life, that it is going to be a fight. And I think the tragedy today, especially in America, is that many of us don't even realize that we're in a battle. Many of us don't really even realize that there is a spiritual world, an unseen world that we cannot see, that every single day never takes a break. Every single day is after your destruction. Every single day it wants to discourage you. I think many of us, oftentimes we approach life like a vacation rather than a war. We approach life like a a playground rather than a battleground. And I think oftentimes, instead of us being like those men on the boat, ready to fight, ready to go to the death, we get on the boat and we're ready to fight in war with a rubber ducky and a beach towel. (laughs) And we're like, let's go, baby. And how silly would it be to show up on the shores of France and everybody around you has machine guns and they've got all, I don't know what kind of guns they use, and you're ready with like your rubber ducky and a beach towel. Like people will look at you and say, bro, you're going to be the first one to die. (laughs) Right? You are the first one to die. And here's what I want to get you to understand this morning. That there is an unseen world out there. Um, Whether you believe it or not, Um, and and if you don't believe me, I strongly encourage you to go back and read the Bible for yourself because even Jesus and Paul and all the disciples believed in an unseen demonic world that wants nothing but your destruction. Paul even writes this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It'll be on the screen. He says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So he's not, he's saying like, hey, your enemy, your real enemy is not your brother. It's not your neighbor. It's not your sister. 
He says, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and in parentheses, not earthly powers, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul believed in an unseen spiritual world. Jesus believed in an unseen spiritual world. But here's the problem with, especially in America, the reason that we don't believe it's such a big deal, because in America, we don't believe it until we see it, (laughs) right? You can't see it, so it's really, really hard for us to even believe in it. So let let me paint a picture for you for a moment. How many of you have ever woken up one day, or maybe you've had just one of those months, or one of those years, or one of those weeks, where you just feel like this unbearable, crushing weight on you, and you don't know what it is. You don't know how to solve it. Like, you've, you've gotten a new set of friends. Maybe you've, you've, you've moved a few times. But no matter what you seem to do, no matter what kind of changes you seem to put in place, you still feel this unbearable, crushing weight. Or maybe you look at the past month, and you just look at the circumstances that have played out, and you go, God, Why? Has anybody ever looked at your life and you go, God, just hold on a second. Why? (laughs) Why me? Do you hate me? What is going on? And the truth is there is a battle taking place in a realm, in a world that we cannot see. Yet again, that wants nothing but your destruction. Now, Paul's going to end the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, telling us about a list of weapons that we can use to fight this unseen world that wants nothing but our destruction. But before I get into that, before we read that, I want to cover a few things. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, when it comes to the demonic, people usually fall into two errors. Okay, so this is what he says. Either they take him altogether too seriously, or they don't take him seriously enough. So let me, let me summarize by what he means by this. So we know, a lot of us know a bunch of Christians that fall into that first category. So let me put it this way. They blame Satan for everything. Anybody know people like that? Like you're about to pull into Walmart and somebody takes your place and you're like, dang, Satan. <laughs> you know, or, or, or you blame Satan for silly things like a dead car battery or a traffic jam. Or you go to get milk at Walmart and it's $7 instead of four. And you're like, I know it. Satan's just trying to screw up my budget so I can't tithe. <laughs> and, and you blame the enemy for everything. We all know people like this. They kind of fall into that category where they, everything, every problem that they have, every stub toe that they get, every issue that they face, it's always the enemy's fault. So C.S. Lewis is saying that's the first category. Then there's a second category, which I think most of us today fall into this category. They ignore it altogether. And they don't see it as a big deal. This is the person who walks onto the beaches of France with the rubber ducky and the beach towel. This is the person that shows up to war with no weapons. This is the person that walks alone in life and they can't figure out why they have this unbearable crushing weight upon their shoulders. Because this is the person that does not know how to fight in a battle. Listen, Satan could care less whether or not you believe in him. He's not after your recognition, he's after your destruction. Satan wants to destroy you. He wants to do everything that he can to discourage you. Man, some of you have dove into a relationship with Jesus, and man, you're on fire. I know we've got some new people here on the dream team, and and you're loving it, and you're saying, man, this is great. Listen, I just want to warn you. I'm so happy that you're on the team. I'm so happy that you're serving Jesus. Many of you got baptized last week. Man, I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. But there will come a day when you're going to have to fight. 
And there will come a day where the enemy is going to do everything that he can to discourage you from that journey that you just got on. And he's going to remind you of past habits, and he's going to remind you of old lies, and he's going to remind you of things that you used to believe in. And you're going to get to a place where you go, you know what, I just need to settle back, because this whole Jesus thing, it's not really my style. It's not really working out. See, Paul calls Satan an angel of light, and I want you to get this. Meaning, he'll transform himself into whatever form is best suited to deceive you. He never, like, you ever notice, like, Satan never comes as this scary monster or this horrible demonic being. He always comes in a form that is best to deceive you. He will, he'll come in the form of an attractive woman if you're a male. He comes in your thoughts. He comes in the middle of your marriage, women saying, oh, you don't need him anymore, you need somebody else. That's how he comes, in these subtle, sly ways. 1 Peter 5, 8 puts it this way. Be alert and of sober mind, because the enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So there's two categories that this scripture is talking about. First, Satan is like a hunter. Now, I don't know if you know this, but if you hunt, what is the whole goal of being a hunter, man? Not just to kill something, but you don't want to be seen when you go out, right? It's why we spend all the kinds of money on the right camouflage. And, you know, my dad's all into this thing, and he he builds these huge, like, grass blinds. And, you know, the geese are flying over, and the whole idea as the hunter is to not be seen. So what? That you can catch the duck or the goose or whatever by the element of surprise. So the whole goal is when you stand up out of that blind and you shoot that bird out of the sky, you kill them because they never saw it coming. And that's exactly how the enemy is. So the first category, he's like a hunter. And hunters don't care if you see them. They would actually prefer for themselves not to be seen. The second category that he talks about, Peter calls Satan a lion, which means Satan is a part of the cat family. And we know that's a really bad thing. Because all cats are going to hell. Anyway. But here's the truth. Just because you can't see him does not mean that he's not there. Satan would actually prefer that you never see him coming. So let me give you an example. In um, 1864, there was a physician named Ignaz Samauswis. And that's a German name, and that's the only time I'm going to say it, okay? Um, Stumbled onto the theory that we now call germ theory. So back in 1864, a hospital was the highest rate for mortality. So people, patients would go in, and um, about 90% of the patients that went into the hospital for long term would end up dying, and they just couldn't figure out why. So this, this physician, this doctor, started observing everything, and he noticed that a doctor would begin to work on a dead corpse, and then he would go to the next room and deliver a baby without ever washing his hands. And and they never knew anything about microbes. They never knew anything about germs. They never knew anything about the whole microscopic world. Um, Actually, in that day and age, and I was telling my wife about that this week, but um, gentlemen, so men actually believed, they were like, hey, gentlemen don't wash their hands because real gentlemen's hands are never clean. I mean, they're never dirty. Imagine the thought process. You imagine that you come in home and your wife is like, hey, did you wash your hand? Girl, I'm a gentleman. Gentlemen never wash their hands. They're always clean. They, they, they just believe this. So what this physician did is he took a group of students and he said, hey, listen, what you're going to do 
is before every surgery, before every operation that you perform, you're going to wash your hands. And then he took another group and he said, okay, you just continue your duty as normal. And he began to notice that every single patient that washed their hands would not lose a patient. And so what he did is he began to try to convince his fellow colleagues, hey, listen, um, he coined the term microbes and ultimately ended up coining the term germs. He says, listen, I think there's an unseen uh, microbe or a germ on people's hands. Um, and if we wash our hands, uh, people should be a whole lot safer. Well, all the other doctors looked at him and said, there's no way that there is something that we can't see that is harming people. And uh, for decades, he fought against this. Um, he even tried to convince his own wife about germs. And his own wife ended up thinking he was crazy and they put him in a nut house. He fought his life trying to tell people, hey, there is an unseen germ world out there. And it wasn't until a decade later that another doctor came along and proved his theory. And now today, look, it seems so obvious, right? It seems so obvious that we should sanitize and wash our hands and all these things. But that is exactly how the enemy works. And I use this illustration to point back to the fact that many Christians are just naive to this war, this battle going on every single day. And just because you can't see something doesn't mean that it is working against you. See, the problem is, if you want to look for the demonic, if you want to look for the unseen world, all you simply have to do is look at your past life. Look at the certain elements that have unfolded in certain seasons of your life. Could it be that it's not coincidence that a certain series of events has just plagued you over and over and over and over again? Maybe for the last month, maybe for the last six months? Could it be that there really is a demonic force out there trying to destroy you? Trying to get you to lose hope? Trying to get you to lose faith? Trying to get you to a place where you get so low that you say, man, I don't know if I trust in God anymore? Andy Stanley put, put it this way. He said, if you want to see the evidence for the demonic, you won't find it by looking through a microscope, but by looking in the rearview mirror of your life. Just look at the past events. Look at the past things that have happened in your life. I look at the past events that have transpired over the past month and a half in my own life. Man, my forerunner gets totaled to get in a major accident. My entire family gets the flu. There's shootings in Crowley. God's stretching the leaders of this church like he's never stretched them before. My van now got in a wreck. Don't ask me how that happened. I'm dealing with two insurance claims. And then all, of, I mean, it's, it's probably been one of the busiest seasons for me. Personally, God's just opened so many doors um, for, for myself and being able to connect with different community leaders in the city. There have been this just, and I could go on, I could sit up here for, for 30 minutes and tell you all the things that have transpired over the past month. And I look at it and go, that's not by chance. It's not a coincidence. The perfect storm in your life is not an accident. Because ultimately the enemy wants you to foul out of the game. He wants to get you out of this thing called a relationship with Jesus. Is he going to do everything to trip you up? And I really believe as a church, we're literally on the precipice of God doing something incredible. And if we're on that line, why wouldn't the enemy come against the leader and say, hey, let me just discourage you as, as much as I can? Because this is what he's tried to do for the past month and a half. And, and I'm here today to tell you, because I know that I'm not the only one walking through this season right now. I know that there's many of you walking through a trying season. 
Could it be that there is a real, genuine enemy out there that wants to destroy your faith, that wants to kill your hope, that wants to damage your reputation, that wants to damage your belief? See, Ephesians tells us that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against spiritual forces. So here's what I want to do real quick. Before I give you some tools on how we fight against the enemy, we've got to answer the why. So before we get to the how we prepare for the battle, we have to answer the question of why. Because I think that's the first question that we ask ourselves many times. When we go through difficult seasons of our life, we don't go, God, how do, how do I get prepared for this? We go, God, why am I going through this? So let me answer the why for you real quick. The first one is this. God allows us to go through trying seasons in our life because he wants us to be more alert to the spiritual forces that are working against us. Verse 18 in Ephesians chapter 6 says, To that end, he wants to keep us alert so that we can persevere. See, there's much more to your temptations than just doubt and lust and pornography and whatever it may be. There's much more to those temptations. Those little things are just there to trip you up so that ultimately the enemy can get you to foul out of the game. So that he can, he, he brings along these subtle temptations of the flesh and these things that we want to indulge in. But the, 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 the end game is this. He wants to de- seduce you to a place so you can wake up six months from now going, how in the world did I get here? How in the world am I so distant in my relationship with Jesus? That's why he keeps throwing these things at you. I don't know if you realize this or not, but have you ever noticed that the enemy always comes when you feel the weakest? Every single time that he wants to trip you up and and when life just happens and maybe your finances are a wreck just because maybe you've had health bills and medical things and all these things. The enemy always comes and plays on our emotions when we are the weakest. Why? Because he wants us to foul out. Number two, God allows spiritual battles to happen because it creates a deeper dependency on him. It creates a deeper dependency on him. And here's the truth. We have to be dependent on him because we're fighting a supernatural power, which is the enemy. And there is no way we have a chance in our own power, in our own might, in our own strength. You have to fight a supernatural power with a greater power, which is Jesus. So Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Notice it doesn't say be strong in your own might. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all, I love this line, to stand firm. So there's two phrases in this scripture that can really help us fight well. Number one is this. Stand firm, you cannot escape the fight. So here's what Paul is saying. War is going to come, battle is going to come in this life, and there's nothing that you can do to escape it. And unless you fight, you will be mowed over. You have to learn to, this. I love this scripture. It says, anchor your heels down, get ready. You're going into battle whether you want to or not. I guarantee you, I guarantee you there were men on those ships as they were invading France that did not want to die. Nobody's like, yes, yeah, sign me up to die. <laughs> those men didn't want to die. It was the fact that they understood I'm, I'm a part of a cause greater than myself. And if death is what happens to me, then so be it. 
So here's the truth. Here's what I want to tell you this morning. Whether you choose to, to follow Jesus today or not, you are going to fight. Now, whether you win or lose is up to you. You've got to learn to stand firm. And there's only two places in the Bible where Paul says, run. The only, the only exception that he has to not stand firm, the only two exceptions are this. Run from sexual immorality and the love of money. So put simply, when it comes to monies and honeys, get out of town. <laughs> That's the only two times that he says, don't stand firm, get out of there. There's a, there's a scripture, I mean, there's a passage in the Old Testament where we see Joseph and Potiphar's wife. She undresses himself and she, herself and she tries to seduce Potiphar. I mean, Joseph. And what does he do? The dude runs out of there. Runs. It's the only time scripture tells us to run. Or when we get into a place when money becomes are everything. Everywhere else in your life, the scripture tells you to stand firm, get ready, prepare for battle. So let me put it this way. If you're a parent in here, this will, this will resonate with you. You cannot protect your family from Satan by putting your kids in private school or homeschooling them for the rest of their life. And listen, I, and I'm not saying anything negative about that. Claire and I have done both. <laughs> We've had our kids in private school and we've homeschooled and now they're in public school. You cannot protect your children from the schemes of the enemy. At the end of the day, even if you choose to limit their access to the outside world, it does not keep them from being a target. I'm not saying that all these things are necessarily bad, but I want you to understand one thing. The only way, the only way for them to stand against the enemy is to understand the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Point number two that we learn from Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in his might. So you must understand this has nothing to do with your power. It's not about you. And so here's why weakness comes to us sometimes, to remind us that it's not about how strong we are physically or personally or emotionally. That at the end of the day, it's about leaning on Christ. Uh, I posted this out on Facebook the other day, and it said this, In a spiritual battle, your strengths, I want you to understand this, are more often liabilities. Now, why are they liabilities? Because those are the places that you forget to depend on God and lean on his strength. So oftentimes, maybe, maybe you have a gifting Maybe, maybe, you, maybe the physical makeup, the way that God designed you, the way that you, he made you, maybe you're just emotionally stable oftentimes. Maybe you don't crack under pressure. Hey, if the screen's bothering you guys, you just turn it off. Um, maybe you don't crack under pressure. Maybe, maybe it's a place where you come to, maybe you just, God designed you in a certain way, and maybe you have a certain strength. And the reason that I say that strength can be an, a liability is because those things oftentimes we go, oh, I don't need God in that area of my life because I've got that taken care of. But scripture says this, if you feel weak and unqualified to engage in the spiritual realm, that's a good thing. Now, why is that a good thing if we feel weak? Because you are more likely to lean on God's power in those weak places. So, so let me put it this way. In the Christian life, Weakness is an advantage because dependence is the objective. Weakness is an advantage. So here's what I want to say to you this morning. 
if you are dealing with something tough, it's an advantage. Now you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. And I've said this before, I mean, the scriptures and the way of Jesus is just an upside-down kingdom of what we think the world is all about. Jesus takes our frame of thinking and goes, hey, just flip it upside down. (laughs) He said, hey, if you want to be strong, then you need to be weak. Because ultimately, dependence is the objective, meaning this. The reason I make you weak is so that you can learn to lean on me and realize how much you desperately need me. See, you're saved when you realize that you didn't have the strength to save yourself, right? You realize that God graciously came in, leaned into the dark places of your life and said, hey, by my power, by my might, I want to come, I want to step in, and I want to save you. See, you gain spiritual power when you realize I don't have the ability to overcome Satan in my life on my own. So let's read it. It's Ephesians 6, um, 6, verses 13 through 18. And this is what Paul's going to do. He's going to give us some practical applications of how we can prepare and how we can ready ourselves for battle. Now, oftentimes, the scripture that I'm about to read, how many of you guys grew up in church? Anybody? How many, how many, and maybe some of you are not old enough to remember this, but anybody remember felt boards? Anybody remember felt boards? I remember felt boards when I was going to, um, when I was in, 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 I guess, preschool, nursery, whatever. And uh, the teacher used to have a felt board. And when she would teach Ephesians 6, um, she would teach it like this. She would have like a a, a man and he had like a, a shirt and some pants on. And she says, the armor of God. And you take the little felt and you stick it on. This is the breastplate of righteousness. And this is the sword. And this is the shoes. And this is the helmet. And I literally used to visualize that as going like, so you're telling me. I need to be a Christian. I need to look like a knight, <laughs> right? Like I, I, I literally thought I needed real armor. And oftentimes I think that this is one of the most misunderstood passages in all of scripture because we read it and it just becomes like this fable, like oh, the put on the armor of God. What is that even supposed to mean? What does that look like? So I want to read this passage and then I want to interpret the metaphors for you. Um, because oftentimes scripture, it's very metaphorical. Sometimes we read it and, and we don't understand what it means. So hopefully I can give you some practical insight into this. So Ephesians 6, this is 13 through 18. It says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Now watch. I want you to notice how many times Paul says stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of grace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil ones, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, Keep alert with perseverance. So he talks about seven different things. I'm going to go through these very quickly. Number one, he said, if you want to prepare yourself for battle, number one, you've got to take up the belt of truth. So what is the belt of truth? Now, naturally, the belt goes around your core and it holds all your weapons in place on your armor. So here's the metaphor. Nobody wants to go into battle with their pants down, right? (laughs) Nobody. 
Like, I don't know about you, I've used this analogy before, but if I was going into war, like into battle where they're firing real bullets at me, like I, I want to train, I want to learn how to use my gun, I want to learn how to hide if necessary, I want to learn every technique possible because the objective in war for me at the end of the day is to come out alive, right? It's to conquer the enemy and it's to come out alive. But many Christians walk into this life with, with nothing. They're not prepared. They don't have any armor on. And so this, the enemy comes and he just completely blindsides them. So I think Paul's trying to communicate two things when he talks about the belt of truth. The first one is extremely important. Find your identity in Christ because this is how you will discover the truth about who you really are. So he said, hey, if you, wanna, if you really want to know truth, you've got to know who you are. And, and the only way that you're going to find out who you really are is by finding out who God really is and what he says about you. See, I don't know if you know this, but your identity is usually based on what, is, what the most important person in your life thinks about you. That's usually where you find your identity. It's why it's so easy to find our identity in what other people think about us. So here's what Paul's trying to get us to understand by saying, take up the belt of truth. He's saying, find your truth in Christ. The most important person in your life should be Jesus. That should be your truth. Because if that is your truth, then that's how you view yourself. You view yourself as a son, a daughter of Jesus, holy and blameless, without spot, without blemish, because you are covered in Christ. Ultimately, I think what Paul's trying to say is stop basing your identity on your performance. That's not the gospel. It's not about how well you're performing and how well you're doing. And so many Christians get so caught up in this. It's like we walk around every single day with a checklist. How did I score today? Well, it was like a two on the scale. So God must be, you know, dissatisfied with me or he's angry with me or he's, or he's not on good terms with me. We, we walk around scoring ourselves. The second thing that Paul's talking about, he's saying this, your perspective on life, your truth in life must be rooted in what the gospel says, not what culture says. So here's what, and, and, and you, may, you may like it or you may not, but here's what the truth comes down to. Your truth must come from the word of God. Your truth about sexuality, your truth about marriage, your truth about what God says about culture, your purpose, your truth about generosity, your truth comes from Jesus. So here's the question. How do you determine what is true in your life? How do you determine what is true? And many people, for some people, it's their internal compass. Whatever feels right, that's my truth. Or whatever popular opinion is, that's my truth. That's why social media has become so popular. How many of you guys notice the recommendations on Facebook? Hey, I'm looking for recommendations. And here's the truth. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. But here's why many people do it. They do it because they don't know the truth. They do it because they don't know what decision that they should make. And they're looking for a collective group of people to say, Hey, yes, we all agree on this. Go forth and do so. <laughs> Ten or more agree, okay, then that, that must be the thing that I need to do. So I ask the question again, where does your truth come from? And can I be honest with you? There's, there's things that I read in the scriptures that I know to be true, and I don't like them, but I'm still commanded to obey them. Because here's the truth, I know this. Even the things that I don't like, God puts them in there because he has my good in mind, even when I don't like them. 
I, I, I hate disciplining my children. I don't like spanking them. But the only reason I do it is because I know it's good for them, right? Well, God is a good father and he does the same thing. Sometimes the reason he disciplines us, sometimes the reason he crosses our will and what we want, because at the end of the day, he has our good in mind. And you may look at the circumstance and say, well, it doesn't feel good right now. But God's going, just give it some time and you'll understand. See, the only way to, dis- to escape the deception of the enemy is to allow the word of God to shape your truth. And it's why reading the Bible is so important. It's why understanding the word is so important. The second thing that Paul says, take up the breastplate of righteousness. Now, in armor, a breastplate covers what? Your vital organs. So what does he mean by this? Here's the metaphor. It simply means we are taking Jesus' righteousness as our own over all of our vital things in life. Not only are we covered by God's goodness, there's also an obedience element that follows. So meaning that when you understand that God stepped in and said, I'm going to give you a grace, I'm going to pay a debt that you couldn't pay on your own, I'm going to cover you in my righteousness— One, you're amazed by that grace, the goodness of that, but then here's where most Christians stop. They marvel at the goodness and they marvel at the grace of God, but they don't do anything about it. So there's also an obedience element that now should follow. And here's here's the truth. If you're not obeying what God is telling you to do, here's what's going to happen. Satan will use whatever area in your life that is not submitted to Christ to attack you. Whatever area in your life that is not submitted and surrendered to the will of God, that is the area that he's going to come at. See, if you have a crack in your armor, Satan's going to find it. Maybe it's someone that you won't forgive. Maybe it's a bad relationship that you won't let go of. Maybe it's an area of life that's not under control. Maybe it's like your dating life is saying, hey, I don't care what the word of God says. I'm going to do this anyway. Let me ask you this question, and this isn't a question that I asked. Pastor J.D. Greer wrote this in a book, and I thought it was so good. He asked this simple question. He said, if you knew one year from now that Satan was going to bring you down, what would be the thing he uses to do it? And he said, whatever that is, that's the thing that needs to surrender and submit to Christ right now. See, whatever thing, if you could look at your life and evaluate it right now, and you knew that Satan was going to attack you a year from now, what would he use to do it? Man, would would it be your emotions? Would it be your marriage? Would it be unforgiveness? Would it be sexual immorality? What would it be? Number three, Paul says, put shoes on your feet so that you can be ready. See, the sword is not the only offensive weapon in the armor. So here's the metaphor. Your feet are weapons because they carry you forward into the battle. Your feet are weapons because they carry you forward into the battle. So Paul says we overcome the enemy when we move forward. We don't overcome the enemy when we retreat backwards. When we run away. See, oftentimes, man, when you first get saved and you first give your life to Jesus, man, the first few months, it's like, it's like the honeymoon phase. You feel good. You feel amazing. This is awesome. And then Emmy's going to try to trip you up with some discouragement, some fears, some insecurities, and maybe you battle through that, you fight through that, and you make it through. But the next thing he's going to do is he's going to start testing your faith. And he's going to start testing, hey, what are you willing to let go of? 
That's a bug. <laughs> what are you willing to let go of? And, and here's what happens to many Christians. As soon as God taps into the things that are uncomfortable in your life, you run. And here's what Paul's saying. Your feet are an offensive weapon because of the fact that when the battle happens, if you continue to move forward, yeah, you're going to move forward into some uncomfortable seasons of your life. But guess what? If you make it through, the uncomfortableness is gone. You know why? Because you've won that battle. And so here's what many of us, God's calling many of us to do today is to continue to press forward. The only battles that are ever won are the ones that warriors run towards danger and fight. A battle is never, run, is never won by retreating. Here's another way to put it. If you want to start winning battles in your life, you must help first other people win their own battles. So if, you, if you're at a place right now and you're like, man, I'm trying to run forward, I'm trying to fight, here's what Scripture is going to teach us. Man, just help other people win their battles first. And when you start helping other people fight their battles, win their battles, you're going to look back and you're going to begin to understand that God's been fighting for you all along. So what does that look like? Man, share the good news with Jesus with other people. Invite people to Easter. Tell your story of what God has done in your life. I've realized this in my own life, but we become the easiest prey to the enemy when we're bored. When you have nothing to do, when you just sit back and, you know, I'm just kind of trotting through Christianity and this life with Jesus. I'll point you to a few places in Scripture. I don't know if you know this, but that's how King David fell into adultery. He was at home, disengaged from the battle, and when everyone else was off at war, David was at home, lounging, bored, and he sees a pretty woman. I've got nothing else to do. See, the only time that we fall into temptation is when we come to a place where we're not fighting, where we get bored, we slouch back, we, we, were, in, we were in fifth gear and we shift to second. Ah, man, I'm just tired. I don't, I don't want to fight anymore. See, some of you are sitting ducks for Satan because you're bored. And could that be the very reason that he just keeps attacking you? Could that be the very reason that you feel this just overwhelming weight on your shoulders and you don't know how to shake it off? The way that you shake it off is you get busy for the kingdom of God. You fight battles for others and you will begin to understand that God will start fighting your battles for you. Man, if you're discouraged, go encourage somebody else. Go look at somebody else and, and, man, help them with their problems and their battles. Number four. This one's really important. I don't think we talk enough about this one. Take up the shield of faith that blocks the fiery darts. Now, what's the fiery darts? It's simply the lies that Satan throws at us. See, the shield is really a way that Paul sums up all the other pieces of armor. So here's the metaphor. You have a shield that you hide behind when the fiery darts come. This is the only piece of armor that you hide behind. And let me explain it like this. Satan's fiery darts look something like this. Maybe it's a lie. Maybe it's, hey, you're no good. You're never going to amount to anything. You're nothing. You're pathetic. Or maybe it's something like this. After what you did, God will never love you anymore. Or you can never make a difference because of what your past has looked like. 
or hey, God will never use you, or hey, your marriage will always be bad. You're always going to live in this house with just a dull marriage. You'll never have the romance that you want. You'll never have a good marriage. Or maybe for moms or dad, it's hey, you'll never be a good parent. Never. Or you'll always be sick, or you'll never get out of debt. Listen, if you understand what the shield is when the fiery darts come, because you understand the word of God, here's what you do when those lies come. You throw up the shield and you attack it with the truth. And the truth is this. Scripture says, hey, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Or greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. That is the truth. Or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or hey, my God works all things together for those trust him and are carrying out his purpose or if you remember the truth that hey when you're in the the pits of hell it says god will never leave you nor forsake you god will continue to love you regardless of what you've done see that is hiding behind the shield when the lies come that you counteract them with the truth we say this to our children all the time when 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 kids come in and dad he said i'm a butt (laughs) i always look at them i said son is that, are you really a butt? <laughs> is that the truth? No. And, and it's, it's so simple. But here's what happens. The enemy breaks us down to this emotional state that we even believe the most horrendous lies, the most childlike lies. You'll never do anything with your life. And other people will look at your life and say, man, I wish I could live the life that they do. Maybe you're making a greater impact and influencing more people than you really realize, but the reason that you don't recognize it is because you're believing a lie. And here's the truth. You will continue to believe a lie until you understand what the truth is. Just a little side note about the shield. A Roman soldier's shield was created to be linked with his brothers next to him. A Roman soldier's shield was created to be linked with his brothers that are next to him. And here's the truth. Sometimes your faith is not strong enough to get you through the battle. You need other people's faith to help you carry along. Can I be honest with you? This past month, I couldn't have got through it with my own faith. I've been on the phone with my pastors. I had Pastor Jacob call me. Yesterday, we talked for two hours. He just encouraged me, poured life into me. And you know what I did after that phone call? Man, okay, I feel his faith. He's looking at what God's doing in our church and all the things that we're walking through, and I'm going, okay, I can do this. See, sometimes your own faith and your own relationship with Jesus is not going to be enough. It's why you need a church. It's why you need brothers. It's why you need sisters. It's why you need a life group. Because at the end of the day, there's going to be trials in your own life that you can't get through by yourself. No matter how spiritual you are, no matter how much of the word of God you know, you're going to need other people. Number five says, take up the helmet of salvation. Now, what does a helmet do? It goes on your head, right? And it's obvious your head is where you think and it's where you derive all of your thoughts. So here's the metaphor. Remember who you are in Christ. Fight to think what God thinks about you, not who other people say you are. And so many of us are defined by who other people think that we are. And we forget about who God really says we are. 
I wrote this down, and maybe this is just a simple prayer that you could pray this week. And it says this, Because I am in Christ, there is nothing I could ever do that would make you love me anymore. There's nothing that I have done that would make you love me any less. And this is a gift in Christ. And Lord Jesus, you are all I need for everlasting joy. Your love for me is total, and it is enough. Listen, I don't know if you understand this, but there's nothing that you can do that will make God love you any more or love you any less. If you led 10 people to Jesus this week and the person that's sitting next to you, you know, discouraged 10 people this week, God doesn't love them any different. He loves them just as much. Number six, take up the sword of truth. This is the word of God. This is your offensive weapon. This is how you fight. So in, in, this, in this whole series of armor and these metaphors that Paul is telling us, he's saying, hey, this is your main offensive weapon. So here's the metaphor. Here's what he's telling us to do by taking up the sword. He says, master the word of God, which will help you counteract all of Satan's lies. Now, this is true, and this kind of stings a little bit, even when I read it. Your ability to overcome Satan is directly proportionate to your knowledge of the word of God. The reason that we have so many Christians walking around with their tail between their legs and they don't know what to do is because they don't know the word of God. They don't know how to counteract the lies. And so what we're left with is silly Facebook quotes and quotes that, uh, you know, hopefully could get us somewhere. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, brother. (laughs) That doesn't do anything for us when we're in dark days. Yet again, I, I want to speak to the parents again, because we really do. We care about the next generation here. Your kid's ability to overcome the evil one comes down to their knowledge of the word of God. So here's what I want to say to you today, and just lovingly pastor you through this. So yes, have them in baseball. Yes, have them in football. Yes, have them in dancing, but make sure when they leave your house, they know the word of God. Because I'll tell you one thing. In life, baseball, football, dancing is not going to get them through dark days. It's just not. The truth is, maybe you have a kid who's good enough and he might play in the major leagues one day. And that's great. But at the end of the day, when he's struggling in his marriage or she's struggling in her walk with God, her knowledge of the word of God is the only thing that's going to carry her through. It's the only thing that's going to carry them through. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, be so saturated with the word that when life cuts you, you bleed the word of God. It's why scripture teaches us to hide the word of God in our heart. That we meditate on it day and night. I can't tell you how many times I've read through the Bible, closed it, and go, I don't remember anything that I've read. <laughs> Nothing. And then I'm in a situation, it's, it's immediately like that scripture is just coming to me. How do I know that? How do I remember that? Because it's hidden in my heart. Man, every discipline that you sit down to read the Word, if you get nothing out of it, it's still doing something. Because that book is living. It's alive. It's the words of Jesus. They're living and active, and they don't ever return void. So you may read it. You may get nothing out of it, but I promise you this. It's doing something to your heart. It's shaping you, and you don't even realize it. Number seven. Um, This one usually is not included in the armor. 
most of us, there's usually six pieces and we ended at that. Um, But I added one, and it's actually in the scripture, and it says this, finally pray at all times in the spirit. I think many times people don't include this in the weapons, but it's the main weapon that we have. The book of James tells us that the most important thing we can do in the middle of a battle is pray. God, where are you? God, help me. I need you. I said it last week. I don't think that many of us even realize how in desperate need we are of Jesus. Before we started this service, as, as well, we'd started the band's playing, and sometimes as the worship is going on, I'll go up there in that balcony and just walk back and forth and pray. And the one thing that I'm praying over and over and over and over again this morning is, God, help people to understand that they need you a whole lot more than they think they do. Because listen, it's so comfortable to come in here, just hear a word, listen to worship music, and go out there and just go back into life and not allow the word of God to change anything. My prayer for you is this, that today that you would walk away from here understanding that, man, I desperately need Jesus more than I thought I did. It's crazy. I don't know if you realize this, but Elijah changed the weather with his prayer. I was praying that this morning, God, Elijah changed the weather with his prayer. Stop the rain, please. He prayed, and listen to this, for three years and six months, it did not rain. He said, God, dry up the rain so that people can be dependent on you. For three years, six months, it didn't rain. And as soon as Elijah prayed again, the heavens were opened and it began to rain. See, prayer is a very powerful thing. In James 5, 16, it says, the prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I'll close with this. Life is war, but we can have confidence that we have a God who is willing to fight our battles. And here's the thing about spiritual warfare when you get into it. God's not saying, hey, go into the battle and just take care of it on your own. God's saying, if you become dependent on me in your weakness, in your times when you don't know what to do, guess what? I'll fight your battles. I mean, Scripture said, if God is for us, then who could ever be against us? It's like, imagine a basketball team for a moment. You remember the days when you would sit on the court? I was was like, I I just don't even play anymore because I was always the last person picked because I was terrible. But could, could you imagine, just imagine for a moment, like Jesus when he was younger. Like, you're picking your team. You're like, okay, I want Jesus <laughs> on my team. Now, why would you want Jesus on your team? Well, he's got a few tricks up his sleeve, right? Three shot every time he hits it, never misses. Listen, Jesus is on your team. He's fighting your battles. If we learn to be dependent on him, And so the reason that I felt that this message was so important today, I've been praying since yesterday for you guys. God, I pray that this would be something that draws a line in the sand today for this church. This is no longer we're just going to coast by, be comfortable with where we're at, or no longer we're just going to look at the past weeks that have transpired and say, oh yeah, it's just been a crappy month. It's just been a terrible week. It's just been a terrible year. No, it hasn't. It's really an enemy that is fighting for you and wants to destroy you. 
But here's the thing that I love about the scriptures is you can find joy even in the middle of the battle. Even in the middle of intense pain, even in the middle of something that doesn't make sense, there's still a God that says, I want to offer peace and joy to you now, right now. So I want to encourage you today, wherever you're at, and go home, have a conversation with God. God, help me to be able to see that there really is this unseen world that wants to destroy me, wants to do everything that it can to destroy me. And God, help me to be intentional in coming before you and God, in fighting these battles and putting on this armor and understanding that my identity is rooted in you. Hopefully I pray today. I know, listen, I know this. I didn't tell as many jokes as I usually do to get people to laugh or any of that. I know that this was more intense and serious message, but at the end of the day, I really felt that I needed to come here today and just lovingly pastor people. Because I feel like for, for many of us, there's so many people in here that have been sick lately. I felt like as a pastor, I just wanted to come in here and say, man, I just want to beat the wolves off of some people. Because some people have just been allowing themselves to just be devoured and attacked. And just, oh, this is just what it is. No, there's an enemy that is fighting for your soul, begging for your soul, wants to steal your hope, your joy. I was sitting in the car today, got a phone call that I wasn't expecting, and I remember hanging, hanging up this morning and go, enemy, you're not going to rob my joy. Every pastor across America, every single time it rains, it's usually the most depressing Sunday because you don't know what it is. People decide to stay inside when it rains. You're like, oh, God. But what do I do? I pray, God, I'm not, this is so dumb. I'm not going to allow my joy to be robbed by the enemy. And I think that's all I want some of you guys to walk out of here today is, you know what, I'm, I'm driving a stake in the ground. I'm no longer going to be robbed by the enemy. I'm no longer going to allow him to rob my joy, my peace. I'm no longer going to allow him to devour my family, my spiritual life. I'm driving a stake in the ground that says, God, I'm moving forward. I'm moving forward. So I want to pray for you this morning. Just every head bowed, every eye closed in here. If you're in here and you say, you know what, Pastor Zach, I feel like over the past month, over the past year, over the past few weeks, I just feel like the enemy has just been attacking me. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up? (laughs) Sort of thought. Father God, I thank you for every single person in here. God, that came here this morning, God, maybe. They feel under attack. They feel like the enemy has just cornered them on all sides and they don't know where to go. They don't know where to turn. They don't know what to do. But God, I pray that you would be their anchor, that you would be their hope, that you would be their peace in the middle of the storm. God, that you would be their refuge. God, rescue us from ourselves. God, rescue us from even the confidence that we have in ourselves. God, help us to look to you. God, as Proverbs says so eloquently, help us not to lean on our own understanding. God, that we would trust in you, that we would lean on you. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for everything that you're doing in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.